This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, from Tucker Carlson to Johnny Depp, a celebrity bromance is the must-have accessory for the modern dictator, says Marina Hyde. The libertines on feuds, friendship and their tortured reunion. And habituation, the simple behavioural trick that can help you experience a bit less pain and a little bit more pleasure. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Not make a show in front of your wife and kids. What happens when the witness who places you at the scene of a crime isn't human? Because you are under arrest for your warrant, for your outstanding Listen to Black Box, a new podcast series from The Guardian. Seven stories about AI and us. Coming soon. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, what do you do when you're a high-profile American man who suffered a career setback or in desperate need of love? Why you run into the open arms of a despot, observes Marina Hyde. Read by Carlise Peer. Behold, the current must-have accessory for all the most grimly murderous dictators. A pet American idiot. Not just any American idiot, obviously. You need a male, mid-50s to early 60s, ideally fire-damaged by a recent career setback, who just wants to see the best in you for coins. In short, you need someone of the... calibre, would you call it? Of... Tucker Carlson or Johnny Depp. The past week or two has seen the formal reveal of two of these new dictator pet acquisitions. Vladimir Putin's kind offer to rehome the stray former Fox News host and Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's generous response to the question, how much is that deppy in the window? Answer? A rumoured seven-figure tourism promo deal and forking out for one somewhat indifferent period French film. I know, pets are very reasonably priced. Not to say embarrassingly cheap. So let's start with Johnny Depp the joint subject of a most eye-catching Vanity Fair article headlined 
inside Johnny Depp's epic bromance with Saudi Crown Prince MBS. Yes, yes, please take us inside it. Although we reserve the right to leave at any time without being dismembered. The safe word is Raytheon. According to the article, Depp first came into contact with the Saudi ruler while working on a precariously financed French film, last year's Jean de Barry. Having secured Saudi funding, the movie's producers required their star to meet MBS's cousin, a guy called Prince Bader, who also serves as some kind of cultural bagman. I'm getting huge Ribbentrop energy, but perhaps he's adorable. Anyway, one thing led to another, and within months, Depp was revelling in all-expenses-paid trips and face-to-face -face time with MBS, listening to his excuses about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and making a genuine connection. Hey, the heart wants what it wants. Likewise, the wallet. According to Vanity Fair, both men knew how it felt to suddenly go from golden boy to outcast. And certainly, the fates can be very cruel as can movie financing. Seriously, why spend years waiting for your producer to patchwork together some shaky funding from the French Film Foundation, plus a lottery grant, plus an endowment from the Trudy Styler Cinema in Peril Fund, plus 50 quid from UNESCO, plus some crappy Belgian tax credits? You have something really important to get made, in which you get to crossly overturn a small occasional table in Versailles, all while wearing a feathered tricorn hat. How dare the market deny the culture this future gem? How dare people think your God-given right to pretend to be someone else for money should depend on such shifting sands? Why not just go to Daddy Bonesaw and get his chump change in five seconds? And listen, MBS's Red Sea Film Fund wants nothing more than to finance a film about a French courtesan. Given that the finished movie contravenes about 437 of his country's decency and modesty laws, I guess something about Dubarry's life just spoke to MBS. Maybe the fact a woman gets her head cut off. For his part, Depp responded to Vanity Fair's request for comment on his new alliance with a lengthy statement claiming to have experienced firsthand the cultural revolution that is happening in Saudi from emerging young storytellers radiating fresh ideas and works of art to a blossoming film infrastructure and a newfound curiosity for innovation. At a boy. In terms of the old quid pro quo, do remember that Depp has in recent years been saddled with what euphemism forces us to style expensive legal setbacks, followed by expensive legal victories. He reportedly has an endless array of luxury properties to maintain, including a French village he was trying to sell and a private Caribbean island. A private island, of course. Has anything good ever come of a white man owning a private Caribbean island? Oh, don't write in, Branson, even though I'm using your letters to make a papier-mâché sculpture of you carrying a woman in the course of a promotional stunt. I call it the ally. But let's move on to Tucker Carlson, who recently went all the way to Moscow to interview the Russian president in hardcore lapdoggy style. There is a grim sort of poetic justice to the fact this televised faunathon took place just days before Putin's likely murder of Alexei Navalny, which itself seems to have occurred around the time Tucker was filming imbecilically approving videos in a Russian supermarket. 
Did you see the one where he seems to think he has discovered a cutting-edge Russian invention in the form of supermarket trolleys you need to release with a coin? I love that it reveals how much Tucker's producer hates him, willingly allowing his super-rich boss to stray into elite self-parody by lauding something freely available to US citizens in Aldi's and airports for quite, quite some time now. In related news, then, a word on pet cruelty. At this stage, Depp has yet to feel the sharp end of an emerging young storyteller radiating fresh ideas. But Tucker's claim to have been in Moscow doing hard journalism was excruciatingly fact-checked by Putin himself, who, shortly after the interview aired, appeared on TV with a smirk to lament the fact Tucker didn't ask any tough questions. How mean. A Tucker should be for life, not just for propaganda Christmas. Finally, a bizarrely blame-free social media post about Navalny by Donald Trump suggests the Russian president still has old dogs who pee on the rug slash Moscow hotel mattress. In fact, speaking of going to the mattresses, the prospect of that particular dictator hound throwing down for Putin is more grotesque by the day, and the very strongest of arguments for a no-pets rule in the White House. That was From Tucker Carlson to Johnny Depp. A celebrity bromance is the must-have accessory for the modern dictator. By Marina Hyde. Read by Carlise Peer. Next. It's 20 years since the Libertines topped the charts, then fought, stagnated and imploded. But now Pete Doherty and Carl Barrett are back. Was it easy recording together again? Asked Simon Hattonstone. Depends who you ask. Read by Sam Swainsbury. I have done battle with the Libertines three times over the past 19 years. Only I haven't. Not really. Two of the interviews were with Pete Doherty for projects away from the band that made him famous, Baby Shambles and the Puta Madres. The first was in a mangy London hotel bedroom in 2005. He was sitting on a motorbike revving it up when he was awake. Much of the time, he was asleep. He was 26, surrounded by drugs paraphernalia and had daubed rough trade on the wall in his own blood. Last time we met, four years ago, he was in better nick and more sociable. That said, he was still smoking crack, threw a punch that just missed me, kissed my forehead by way of apology and took me to his wreck of a house where he tried to flog me his possessions. He still had something about him, a wasted brilliance and surprising charm that he failed to hide, despite his best efforts. As for his sole brother and sparring partner, Carl Barrett, I met him in 2006, when he was also recovering from the Libertines. Barrett had just formed Dirty Pretty Things, and the band was releasing its first album. He was quiet, likeable, and profoundly depressed. Barrett talked a lot about evil Carl, the self-destructive side of him that had a downer on life. In a different way, you worried as much for the future of Barrett as for Doherty. Now they are back together for their fourth album in 22 years. In 2015, 11 years after their second album, they released Anthems for Doomed Youth. The Wilfred Owen-inspired title was classic Libertines, even if the album wasn't. Poignant, poetic and fuelled by war of one kind or another. All quiet on the eastern esplanade, their new record 
is another classic Libertines title, again referencing war, literature and trauma. The difference is that this is a classic Libertines album. There is the rollicking boisterousness of old in tracks such as Run, 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 writerly songs that allude to 20th century Hollywood, Night of the Hunter, and ballads of shimmering beauty, songs they never play on the radio. Was it easy recording together again? No, Barrett says quickly. Carl insisted on there being no alcohol even, Doherty says. He wanted it to be pure. It's not like I want to get pissed, but I like a glass of cider. And he's like, no, it was pressure. We'd never done it before. The studio had always been a time of merriment and celebration. Was Doherty surprised he could create while sober and clean of drugs? I was relieved and proud. To be able to say to my wife, I'm not drinking. I was proud. What's it like to be back together? Doherty gives me a scornful look. I don't know if that question makes any sense. Barrett, we've been back together since 2010. Doherty, he doesn't know what he's talking about. They're ganging up on me. What I mean, I say, is it's almost a decade since the last album. They give each other a conspiratorial look. It's a better story, actually, to say we haven't been together, Barrett says. They decide they quite like this version of history. I like it when someone comes who doesn't know anything about us, Doherty says sweetly. His moods change today as rapidly as they ever did. What is different, they say, is that this is the first time they've taken pleasure in the product of their toils. Today we were coming up the M23 and we actually listened to the new album from start to finish, Doherty says. We had a sing-along, a bit of a laugh, a bit of a cry. That's something we've never done before. Put on our own record and listen to it on a car journey. Barrett, and definitely not laughing and crying. Doherty, that must say something powerful. There have been many times in his life when he'd thought he'd had it with music, he says, but he always finds himself returning to his guitar. It's a calling, like the priesthood. It will always call certain types of men or women. Barrett, it's like a call to arms. Doherty tuts. Why do you always see the dark side? What made them cry when listening to the album? We were coming up the West Way, and at that moment, songs they never play on the radio came on, and a flood of memories related to the A40 and London in general. The song fades out into a chaotic blur of chatter and laughter. Even that bit, Barrett says. I thought, God, we do like each other. We had fun together, and it was real. I don't like the word fun, Doherty says grouchily. They still go at each other like squabbling lovers. We meet at a photographic studio in London. They're wearing stylish suits for the shoot. Barrett is little changed. Lithe, fit, glossy brown pop star hair. Doherty couldn't look more different. Twenty years ago he was skinny, boyish, with a fragile beauty. Today his hair is grey and he's a huge wardrobe of a man. When Doherty piles on the pounds, it usually means he's not taking drugs. It's when he's at his skinniest we need to worry. Today, he lives in northern France with his wife, Katya, and their baby, Billy May. He has two other children, but admits this is the first time he's been a present father. That's largely down to being clean. I gave up the main poisons and my health improved. Then he gets old alcohol and cheese and sugar are just as bad, and you were healthier when you were on heroin. Barrett, gluttony. Doherty, yeah, I am a bit of a glutton. It's not a joke. I've been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And at the moment, I'm lacking the discipline to tackle cholesterol. Is Barrett surprised that Doherty's still here? Am I surprised Peter's still alive? No, 
He's too smart to die. He never intended to die. Doherty. I always wanted to see the result of things. I don't switch the telly off halfway through election night. I want to see what happens. Is Doherty surprised that Barrett's still here? Yes. There were times I worried about him so much, particularly in the early days. He wasn't very stable. It's interesting that people have tended to worry more for Doherty, I say, whereas in fact, he may have been the stronger one. Now it's Barrett's turn to take offence. Hang on. I had to pull myself up from the wreckage, mate. That takes some strength. He's right. Both have shown extreme vulnerability and resilience. Their relationship is one of Pop's great roller coaster romances. They met when at different London universities. Barrett, a year older, was studying drama at Brunel. Doherty was reading English at Queen Mary. Both dropped out. Doherty's sister, Amy Jo, became close friends with Barrett. My sister came home and said she'd met this guy who was really fit with a ponytail and a six-pack and he was a really good guitarist. Doherty fell for him as soon as they met. I thought he was a cross between Raskolnikov and Johnny Marr. It just seemed like a man on a mission. You couldn't pin him down. If you try to have a conversation with him, you end up in a heated debate very quickly. He'd start destroying things and I thought, what the fuck is this? How did he destroy things? He was angry but there was also a creative, beautiful side. I tried to befriend him, but there was no way in. I thought, oh, I'm not good enough to be your mate. So I just hounded him, really. That's the truth, isn't it? He looks at Barrett. Barrett. Yeah, that's 27 years ago. Doherty says it wasn't like him to do the chasing. It was usually the other way around. But he wanted to start a band, and Barrett was perfect for it. I knew that I needed a good-looking guitarist. But also, Carl wasn't your average sort of lad. He was an impenetrable fortress. Raskolnikov crossed with Johnny Marr. I quite like that. He chuckles, pleased with himself. Barrett. I don't know who the first one is. Doherty. Raskolnikov, from Crime and Punishment. Barrett. Oh yeah, I've got you now. Why was Barrett so angry at the time? Stuff I don't want to talk about, but I had a lot of unhappiness in my childhood. Maybe I was born angry. But my battle has been with that and depression in the wake of the anger. Has his depression eased? Yeah, I'm here, aren't I? He's been in therapy for nine years and says it has helped. It makes it more manageable. I'm certainly not as angry as I was, and I'm not a loose cannon. He talks so quickly with a nasal twang that sometimes it's hard to catch his words. Your speech hasn't slowed down over the years, I say. No, there's a lot going on there. I think they call it ADHD these days. Doherty drags on his fag dismissively. Bloody hell, this interview. Barrett ignores him. I did a screening recently that said it's likely. He grins. My wife keeps leaving books out with titles like How to Deal with ADHD in a Marriage. Doherty. They used to just call it personality. Now they've got all sorts of names for it. I tell Doherty he seems much more self-conscious now he's sober. I know. I must have been so mangled the last time we met that I got really into it and now I'm just being defensive, imagining what all this is going to lead to. So there's two ways to do this. Try to seduce you and establish a great relationship with you so you don't betray me. Or just don't read the fucking article, which is what I've tended to do for the last 21 years. Suddenly he perks up and asks what he was like when we first met. Was a hotel in Brick Lane? I was happy as a sandboy at that time. But now, there wouldn't be the blood or the needles. They were my tools, in a way. Now I'm happy with Gladys, his fabulous Mastiff Cross, who's here today. Walking in the woods and changing the baby. And I have a glass of cider and a cigarette. But I'm quite curious. 
I wouldn't mind being a fly on the wall back then. It would probably break my heart. Barrett, it broke our fucking hearts, mate. We were flies on the fucking wall. He sounds upset, almost angry. Doherty. I don't particularly want to go over all this. Normally, I enjoy reminiscing about this kind of thing, but I don't think it's healthy to do that today. I mean, what are you trying to do by asking these questions? I'm trying to find out about your lives and how you've changed, I say. He's got you there, boss, Barrett says in a broad Bronx accent. Eventually, Barrett succumbed to the young Doherty's charms. They formed the Libertines, united by a love of poetry, punk and chaos. Doherty and Barrett came from very different backgrounds. Barrett had grown up on a council estate in Basingstoke. His mother was a CND activist, his father an artist, until he found a job at an arms factory. Not surprisingly, his parents split up. Doherty's father was a major in the Royal Signals, and the family moved around the country with his job. Until he was 15, Doherty was convinced that he would also join the forces and serve his country. Both were clever boys who gave up on university. Barrett discovered drugs at the age of 10, Doherty much later. In the early days, he says, he only took them to impress Barrett. Barrett was by far the better musician. He dreamed of killing it on stage, but he'd not reckoned with nerves. I was so shy. When I finally got to where I'd been pushing myself my entire life, I'd be crippled by self-doubt and terror. I wasn't able to commit in the way Peter wanted. I was going, oh my God, this is terrifying. Was Doherty shy? Was he shy? Barrett giggles. He was not shy, no. He doesn't know what shyness is. He says the only time he's ever seen a hint of it is if the conversation turns dirty in front of Katya. Doherty nods. There's something from my childhood that's been instilled in me. It's like a knee-jerk reaction. She swears like a trooper. She doesn't get offended. But yeah, for some reason, I still have those Victorian standards. Perhaps that's the influence of your father. Yeah, he's the same. It's strange, Doherty says. Barrett. It's a prudish thing, really, isn't it? Doherty. Yeah, prudishness. Doherty has had a difficult relationship with his father. How do they get on now? Why do you ask that? I'm an interviewer, I tell him. I'm here to ask questions, and I'm nosy. Barrett grins. He's got you there, boss, he says again in the Bronx accent. I seem to talk about that a lot, Doherty says. Whenever Carl and I talked about fathers in the early days, we really bonded. How fucked up we were about them. I'd love to be able to ask him, but I don't think I could ever say to him, How do we get on, Dad? Then he comes to a stop. Whose business is it anyway? What does it matter? Do you really care? Yes, I say. I want to find out what makes you tick. What makes you the person you are. He softens. I love him so much and I feel that a big part of me changing the way I'm living my life, particularly since I got married and stopped taking heroin, is to be accepted by him. And now Doherty's tearful. I've never seen him like this before. I think it's too much for him to see past. You don't have to go that far, Barrett says gently. Doherty, I think I've done things that have made our relationship better, but in my heart I still feel I can't... I don't know. I'd have to score a hat-trick in the World Cup final for my dad to say all is forgiven or make a million from selling this album. When I go up there with Billy May and my wife, he says to me, are you still trying with the music? If I picked him up in a limo with a chauffeur or had a helicopter landing, he'd be like, oh yeah. But for me, I've always been happy to write songs that I'm fucking proud of. Maybe I'm still really seeking it. He's weeping silently. 
thinking about how much his father's approval would mean to him. Does he appreciate you'd been successful, or did he just see the negative stuff? Seconds pass in silence. I think he thinks I had potential and threw it away. Barrett puts his arm around Doherty. I've got to tell you now, mate. I think he's really proud of you for just doing normal things he'd never have expected. He struggles to communicate it, like you do. Doherty smiles and says, We're doing a therapy session for Pete. Life's hard, I say. Doing normal things, getting by, looking after family is an achievement. Life is hard, isn't it, Doherty says. I used to think I could run on air, but now I feel the need for community and somebody who knows how to fix pipes. Barrett laughs. <laughs> Can you do DIY, Pete? Doherty is recovered. Basic plumbing, yeah, when things are clogged up. What can you do? Barrett asks, disbelievingly. I can clear clogs, Doherty shouts defiantly. I can clear clogs in a U-bend under the sink. Barrett. How'd you do that then? Doherty. Well, you get down there with a bucket, you take it apart so all the shit goes in the bucket, and then you're alright for a bit. Barrett. Remember when you pissed in the sink at that party in Harlesden, and it was full of washing up? Then somebody nicked my guitar, that Gibson. Ah, happy days. Maybe. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this article in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to Pete Doherty and Carl Barrett. There was nothing safe about the Libertines. They were raw, primal and unpredictable. The band were a four-piece, Barrett and Doherty, accompanied by John Hassel on bass and Gary Powell on drums, as they are today. Both Doherty and Barrett were frontmen, playing guitar and singing. Barrett, rockier, Doherty more soulful, from the same mic like a punk Lennon and McCartney. But there, the comparison ends. The Beatles enjoyed global success, evolved and left an astonishing back catalogue. The Libertines? They fought, stagnated and imploded. They had one chart-topping album, the self-titled Second, and four top 20 singles between 2003 and 2004. Their best songs, Time for Heroes, What a Waster, had the stern and drang intensity of a young Goethe. Self-destruction went hand-in-hand with hedonism. Meanwhile, their biggest hits, Can't Stand Me Now and What Became of the Likely Lads, documented a relationship that had already fallen apart. 
a success story already in the past tense. The Libertines were done and dusted by 2004, yet there was something special about them, their Blakean vision of an England rich in culture without being jingoistic, their desire to break down barriers between fans and band playing gigs in basement flats, and a life-affirming raucousness alongside their reckless nihilism. They provided endless front-page news for the tabloids, usually courtesy of Doherty, whether it was about his tumultuous relationship with supermodel Kate Moss, his drug habits or bizarre behaviour on stage. He ran away from a gig mid-song in 2004. After Doherty was temporarily thrown out of the band in 2003, the headlines came thicker and faster. He was jailed that year for breaking into Barrett's flat and stealing items including an antique guitar, a laptop, a video recorder, a CD player and books. In 2006, he was caught on CCTV, running past 30-year-old actor Mark Blanco as he lay dying on the pavement. It is still unknown whether Blanco jumped or was pushed off a balcony at the flat where they were partying and had been involved in a confrontation. In 2011, the Crown Prosecution Service said there was insufficient evidence to charge anybody over the death. In the same year, Doherty was jailed for six months after pleading guilty to possession of cocaine. Soon after we last met in 2019, he turned his life around. At the time, he was having a break from Katya. They got back together and he did the one thing he could to prove he loved her. He gave up drugs and started to take opiate blocker injections, which prevent opioids producing rewarding effects such as euphoria. In 2006, he had an opiate blocker implant, but he dug it out with a combination of hands and knife. Has it been transformative? Yes, with all the will in the world, I don't think I'm ready to lose it. People around me definitely prefer me to have it. Good lad, Barrett says, patting him on the knee approvingly. Keep that up. How does Barrett think Doherty has changed over the years? Well, Barrett starts. Doherty, be honest. Barrett, I was about to say before I was interrupted. He's grown stronger in so many ways. He can let himself be loved in ways he couldn't before, if you want to go to the kernel of it. And as a friend, it's been easier on me, which is a fucking bonus because it means I get to lower my defences. It's not just a big, happy, clappy loving. It's still hard and prickly and spiky. And there's a darkness there to navigate. The darkness is by no means confined to Doherty. When I met Barrett, I remember thinking he seemed incredibly troubled. And by then he was in a far better place than he had been. I still struggle now, Barrett says. Yes, I've had my moments. I've still got the scars. Doherty, it's a strange crossing point because you've got this one fella who was from a disciplined and ordinary background who had this romantic vision. He's talking about himself. And you had someone from a really chaotic background who was maybe longing for normality. I was going the other way and we met right there. We tried to hold on to each other in the storm. What does Doherty think has changed most about Barrett? On a purely basic level, he's got bricks and mortar around him. He's got a home. It's a huge thing. I quite enjoyed the vagrancy and sofa surfing and squatting. I don't think Carl did. Barrett says his dream was always to feel normal, on his own terms. To feel like I can make it in this society, I can exist on this planet, and I don't have to just throw myself into the canal. Barrett says becoming a father, he has two children, aged 9 and 13, with his partner Edie Langley, finally gave him a sense of belonging. 
There's something about having kids. You can't switch off and let the depression overcome you. That's no longer an option. Then it makes you realise that if that's not an option now, what was it about in the first place? I don't know. It's a bit paranoid. For a long time, Doherty was homeless, relying on the goodwill of friends and lovers for a roof over his head. In 2017, Barrett invested in a seaside hotel in Margate, partly so Doherty had somewhere to live. He called it the Albion Rooms, after the first flat they lived in together, had it refurbished and built a studio on the site. This is where the new album was recorded. Could this record finally make them wealthy? Yes, in theory, Doherty says. But for me, there are tax bills from 15 years ago. Also, every time I think I've made a bit of bunce, it's gone immediately. In tax? Yes, I've always paid it, you see. It's complicated, though. Now living in France and my child support, it's like Sisyphus with the money thing. I've always said one day we'll make a record that will sell so many we won't have to worry about money. But it hasn't happened yet. Barrett, the thing is, unless you want yacht money, if you can live in a house and not have to do jobs you don't like, that's as good as you need to be, right? The band's publicist, Tony, pops in to say we're running out of time. Tony has worked with Barrett and Doherty since way back. I ask if there's anything he'd like to ask. He has a think. Is there anything you would have done differently? Doherty exhales loudly. Wow, this is hypothetical. Like science fiction. I wouldn't have run down Brixton High Street halfway through Can't Stand Me Now. I love playing that song, but I was so mangled and my head was so far up in the rafters. I couldn't hold it. Sometimes when I was lashing out, I thought it was the start of some movement, like loads of people were going to join in and smash everything together and it was going to mean something. And in the end, it's just me and maybe a couple of others hurt themselves, end up in prison or... Dead, I say. Yeah, too many dead. I asked Doherty if he regrets running away from the scene of Blanco's death in 2006... Oof, mate, he replies, as if he's just been hit. What are you asking about that for? He says it's unfair because it's come so late in the day. If you'd started on that, Barrett finishes the sentences for him, you would have left the room. No, 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 Doherty says. He comes to a stop and says he doesn't want to sound flippant about such a serious matter. He knows he will always be dogged by the CCTV footage of himself then-girlfriend Kate Russell Pavier and minder Jonathan Jonvol walking past the body on the ground, then running away. Three weeks after Blanco's death, Jonvol walked into Bethnal Green Police Station and confessed to his murder. Hours later, he retracted his statement, citing stress as the reason for making a false confession. Of course I wish I hadn't run away. Of course I wish I hadn't, Doherty says. I should have just stood there and waited for the police and just thrown everything down the drain. He means his drugs. Of course. I mean, yeah, basic stuff, isn't it? Legging it down the street barefoot. He's still haunted by the night. We return to the new album. Sure, it's taken a long time, but it really does sound like a band that has finally matured. Do they have a renewed trust in each other? I never trusted him in the first place, Barrett says. These questions, Doherty protests. These are deep and personal questions. We probably don't know the answers to them ourselves and, and don't want to know. We made a good go of our music, which we both believe in and I think we both trust each other with. 
We didn't go into the studio with these songs written. We spent a lot of time sat there with a typewriter hammering these songs out so we believe in the album and trust the album. Maybe in 10 years we'll go into a serious group therapy session and get these things hammered out. But there's no time for that now. We've got to spend nine days on a tour bus with each other. This is a type of in-depth analysis of friendship that might make things uncomfortable and I don't want to make Carl uncomfortable. I want him to be happy and comfortable that he's doing this. The more we delve into these things, the more I'm likely to say something stupid to try to get a cheap joke. And it won't be a cheap joke to Carl. It will be something hurtful, so I don't want to do this. There is a painful sincerity to Doherty's words. Barrett once said he'd never find another songwriting partner like Doherty. Was he right? I think it'd still be true now, he says. Um, Doherty says, another loud exhalation. <sighs> you want the honest answer? Yes, please. Maybe I'm not thinking it when I write the song, but the first thing I think afterwards is, I wonder what Carl will think of that, whoever I'm writing the song with. The honest answer is, everything I write is for Carl. That was, am I surprised Pete Doherty is still alive? No, he's too smart to die. The Libertines on feuds, friendship, and their tortured reunion by Simon Hattonstone. Read by Sam Swainsbury. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this piece, we've included details of helplines you can contact on the episode page at theguardian.com. Finally, habituation. The diminishing returns of something stimulating is a key component of human nature, and knowing how to manipulate it to our advantage can produce some powerful effects, according to Harvard professor Cass Sunstein and cognitive neuroscientist Tally Sharrett. Read by Carlise Peer. Imagine you're out for dinner at your favourite restaurant, and the waiter seats you at the best table. It's nice and quiet, so you can have a pleasant conversation with your partner. The table is also right next to a window with great views. You drink your wine and enjoy some delicious food. The dinner lasts a couple of hours. Do you think you'd enjoy the evening more if you sat at the nice table the whole time? or if you were occasionally sent to the back of the restaurant where it was crowded and noisy? Well, that's a stupid question, you're probably thinking. Who would want to go somewhere rowdy if they had a lovely spot exactly where they were? That's certainly what intuition suggests, but it's wrong. Studies show that people enjoy good things in life, like listening to music or getting a relaxing massage, more if they break them up into smaller pieces. A nice table is pleasant, but the joy experienced during the first hour fades over time. The reason? Habituation. That's our brain's tendency to respond less and less to things that are constant, that don't change. As we get used to the pleasant aspects of our life, both big, a loving spouse, a comfortable home, a good job, and small, a great view, a tasty dish, we notice and appreciate them less. Unless, that is, you break up the experience. Moving to the more cramped bit of the restaurant for a while, perhaps to visit the bathroom, will trigger dishabituation, making the luxury of your window seat more salient. For another example, consider vacations. A few years ago, one of us, Tally, went on a work trip to a sunny resort in the Dominican Republic. Her mission was to find out what made holidaymakers happy and why. She interviewed people about their experiences and asked them to fill out surveys. When the data was in, she noticed one word that appeared again and again. 
first. Vacationers spoke of the joy of seeing the ocean for the first time, the first swim in the pool, the first sip of a holiday cocktail. Firsts seemed hugely important. You cannot habituate to a first. As firsts usually happen earlier in a vacation, Tali wondered if people had a better time at the start of their trips. Luckily, the large travel company with which she was working had asked customers from around the world to rate their feelings throughout their holidays. Crunching those numbers revealed that joy peaked 43 hours in. At the end of day two, after people had got their bearings, was when they were happiest. Thereafter, it was all downhill. Which is not to say that they found themselves miserable by the end. Even when they returned home, many still benefited from a warm holiday afterglow. Still, less than a week passed by before they quickly adjusted to home life, work, school runs, bills. Within seven days, it was difficult to detect any effect of the time away on their mood. This evidence suggests that you might benefit most from several small trips spread throughout the year rather than one long escape. That way you will maximise firsts and afterglows, not to mention the pleasure of anticipation, which you will experience more often. This applies much more generally than holidays, of course. For example, people who were given massages with breaks in between were found to have enjoyed it more than those who weren't interrupted. Anything that is wonderful will become at least a bit less wonderful over time. Why not take a break and enjoy it all over again? What about unpleasant experiences? Should you divide those up too? Imagine you had to clean a toilet. Would you rather do it in one go or take little breaks every 10 minutes? Or suppose that your upstairs neighbour, Marvin, is practising the drums and that you can hear the annoying noise loud and clear. Should you make Marvin a cup of coffee so that you both get a break from the bang-bang-bang of his drumsticks? Most people want to endure the unpleasantness in chunks. When researchers asked people whether they would like a break from smelling a nasty odour or just have the whole thing over and done with in one go, 90 people said, breaks please. The vast majority, 82 out of 119, also said they wanted a break from an irritating noise. They did so because they believed the experience would be less upsetting with a breather. It seems like a reasonable prediction, but it isn't correct. When people were actually exposed to the noise, those who took time out suffered more overall. The break interrupted their natural habituation to the unwelcome stimulus. The lesson? If you need to complete an unpleasant task, it would probably be wise not to chop it up. Once you come back, the smell will be worse, the noise louder, and the experience grimmer overall. There's some folk wisdom embodied here, perhaps. Exhortations to get it over and done with or rip off the band-aid are familiar, and in Absence Makes the Heart Grow Fonder, we have perhaps some age-old advice that recognises the influence of habituation in relationships. But although they're there in our language, it seems we have a hard time overcoming our intuitions to the contrary. The results of psychological experiments are clear, however, and being mindful of habituation's powerful effect could help us all experience a bit less pain and a little more pleasure. That was The Big Idea. This simple behavioural trick can help you get more out of life by Cass Sunstein and Tally Sharrett. Read by Carlise Peer. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, 
please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review or let us know what you want to hear more of. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Carly's Peer and Sam Swainsbury and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue checkmark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.